We were just uh, gossiping backstage, so hopefully we'll continue that up here. <laughs> In the middle of a story. Um, I'm Garrett Conley, I'm the author of Boy Erased, and I am really happy that you're all here. It looks like a big crowd, I can see you, yeah. Um, thank you for coming. This event is called Our Fathers, so we're gonna talk a lot about fathers. Um, it's part of the Penn World Voices Festival, uh, there are two more days to go for Penn World Voices. Um, there are still tickets for several events, and they're easy to reserve at pennworldvoices.org. Um, thank you to our co-presenters, Subculture and Amazon Literary Partnership. Um, the breakdown of the session, yes, you can clap for that. <laughs> um, so, the <laughs> we're gonna clap for everything, I know. We have to play nice up here. Um, the breakdown of the session is it's going to be about 90 minutes long, um, and we're going to have 10 minutes for Q&A at the end, so you can be thinking about questions um, as they talk. Please remember to turn your phones on silent. Uh, and I'm going to briefly introduce our two writers here. I know you all know them very well. Um, both of our writers today are polymaths, having written fiction and nonfiction and academic works and all sorts of things. Um, Colin Tobin is the author of numerous books, most recently, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, The Fathers of Wild Yates and Joyce. It's a great read. Um, the book explores the relationships between these writers and their fathers, and also showcases the often amazing serendipitous moments of creation. Um, like when you, Colin, were dining with uh, Yates's son. <laughs> um, so that was amazing. Uh, and Edouard Louis is the author most recently of Who Killed My Father, a beautiful and searing portrait. Um, and also, was that dedicated to Xavier Dolan, the Xavier Dolan, the director? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's a connection we share because he was in Boy Race, which I know. is really fun. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful book. Uh, we're going to start with a few general statements to help us introduce uh, the books, and then we're going to go into some more specific questions for each author. So my first question is um, maybe the most obvious one. What brought you to write about these fathers? So, Colm, you describe in your introduction being haunted in the changing streets of Dublin by the memories of these three very famous literary men. Um, and their fathers. Edouard, your books shows us how well 
um, how after leaving your father and living in Paris, you became haunted by the way society had left your father behind. Um, and I have a quote here from your book. The father is never allowed to tell his own story, while the son longs for a response that he will never receive. Um, I'd like to start with sort of asking how uh, you were motivated to write these books. I started by being interested in the father of W.B. Yeats. Um, he found himself at the age of 68 um, in 1907, living with his two daughters, Lily and Lolly. Lily and Lolly did exactly the same work. They worked in design, designing books, designing tapestries. One was called Lily, the other was called Lolly, but they hated each other. And, and, and they wrote vicious letters about each other and they bickered all the time and he was living with the two of them and he had been a painter but he hadn't been successful so he had no money so he was depending on them. In the meantime his son um, W.B. Yeats was becoming an immensely famous poet and playwright and his, even worse his son Jack was becoming a famous painter and they finished everything they did whereas he could never do that. And um, in 1907, his daughter Lily was going to America to a trade fair, and he said he'd like to go with her. And he arrived in New York, age 68, and he just said, I I'm not going home. I'm staying. I think when you get into your 60s, you always want to, how am I, you know, those declining years? Like, what, what am I going to do during them? And, and he's the great example because he just walked the streets. He lived in a boarding house, which he loved on 29th, in West 29th, because he could tell these old stories to everyone new all the time. <laughs> you know, so that he just loved a new person because he hadn't heard his stories before. And he became one of the great letter writers of the age. Ezra Pound edited an edition of his letters. Everyone, his letters were remarkable in their, um, not only the quality of the writing, but the sort of moral vision he had of things. And he also um, started a love affair. And um, he obviously had, had some physical connection with this woman whose wonderful, wonderful name. She's called Rosa, is her first name. And her second name is Butt, B-U-T-T. -T. And he wrote her 200 letters until he died, telling her how much he loved her and what would happen if they married and what it would be like in bed for the two of them. But they never met again or anything like that. He's, he would not come home. They did everything to bring him home. And uh, John Quinn, who was paying for him in New York, the, the, the lawyer said that he would give him, you know, a nurse will accompany you on the boat the whole way. And he said, I don't care if an orangutan accompanies me the whole way home. I'm not going near that Ireland again. I'm staying in New York. So that's what started me. <laughs> uh, it's a quite different story. <laughs> um, no, the thing is that um, I, n I, n I never had any kind of relationship with my with my father. I, as I described in my two first book, I, I was born in this working class, like post-industrial milieu in a small village in the north of France, and in this small village. Uh, the, the masculine values were the most important values. It was more than values, it was a matter of obsession. It was an obsession. And, and there is a, an idea that I often quote from the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, when, when, when the French sociologist, when, when Pierre Bourdieu says that, in fact, we, we, we take everything from the working class. We take the money from them, we take the access to culture from them, we take the access to college, to, 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 to school system most of the time. And so the only thing left, is the body, and so the, the only thing left for someone like my father for a few years was his body. And so he ended up building this ideology of the body and of the strength and of the masculinity, and of, you know, it goes together. 
and 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 I was born as a as a gay man in this in, as a gay boy in this in this milieu, um, like attracted to boys and attracted to what was considered like feminine activities, uh, values, uh, games, and everything. And so, since I was born, the relationship with my father was impossible. And and as soon as I was like two years old, three years old, we. We couldn't speak together because as soon as I would speak, I, w I was ashamed for him. And he would tell me, like, why do you bring shame in this house? Why, why do you do that? Why are you so effeminate? Why are you attracted to boy? Do you do that in order to humiliate us, to humiliate our family? And, and so during my whole childhood, I was, I was longing for his absence. I, I didn't want him to be here with me. And I, I, didn't, I didn't get to know him. And I didn't want to know him. And he was constantly saying like gay people should be killed uh, with Arabs and with J uh, Jews. Like he was saying he was voting for the far right. It was, um, and, and so basically it was extremely complicated. And, and when I moved to the city and probably in part because I was gay, because I am gay, uh, I, I went to study and, and I stopped talking with my father and I started to write books and, and I, I published my first novel, The End of Eddie and then History of Violence. And after publishing my two first novels, um, my father called me one day and we hadn't talked in, in years. I was 21, 22. And my father called me and he told me, um, uh, I'm so proud of you. Uh, I want to speak with you. I want to talk with you. I want you to talk about your partner. I want you to talk about your life. And it came out as a complete <laughs> surprise for me because in my book, I talk about my own sexuality, my own gay sexuality. And with this father, it was not obvious that he would be proud of that. And so <laughs> I returned to the town and to the region where we grew up. And, and as soon as I opened the, the door, I saw my father, uh, who is more or less 50 years old and whose body is, is completely destroyed. My father cannot really walk anymore, cannot really breathe anymore without an apparatus. He's constantly at the hospital. He has having a lot of trouble. And so when I saw him like this, I asked myself, uh, what happened? What happened? Why is he like this? Like so many of my friends in Paris who are 60, 70 years old, I'm in much better, better, better shape. I'm much younger than my father. And so from this return and from this new relationship, more or less, because it's not easy that I started to have with him, I, I decided to, to write about him and to write about the story and the history uh, of his body and of his being. And, and, and it's very bizarre, it's as if the, the fact that he lost his body, the, the fact that he lost the use of his body, in a way like cracked his obsession with masculinity and, and his masculine insanity and his masculine violence. And paradoxically, this violence opened up a con a, the possibility of a conversation between him and me. So that was the whole thing. Um, you know, both of these books sort of deal with what happens whenever the son becomes, sort of eclipses the father and has a career that's, that exceeds what the father had. And I wonder if y'all could speak to that maybe with Colin first. Um, the, the, I think the career of James Joyce, what happened to him, it depends on how he dealt with the problem of his father. His father was a drunk. He was really abusive in the house. He didn't work after the age of about 45. He had inherited quite a lot of property, all of which he lost. He, he had a job which he lost. He didn't even get a proper pension. It, when his pension would come, he would immediately go out drinking and um, leaving the family literally with no food. 
and he would abuse everybody. And um, how do you deal with that if you're a novelist? Are you going to go on all your life in a, in a state of resentment, writing resentment novels? What an awful father I had, how drunk he was. And, I mean, it, it was very unlucky, this Joyce's father, because he had a second son called Stanislaus who kept diaries so he can tell every day what the old man was doing and saying. And it was sort of awful. James Joyce really goes for him in a story called Grace, where his father, he has him falling down the stairs of a pub and the description of his injury, and he's a complete fool. But later then he wrote The Dead, in which he merged himself with his father. And then in Ulysses, he, gives, he, he works out, what did my father do when he went out with his pension money to spend in pubs in Dublin? He was a wit. He was a raconteur. He was a tremendously good singer. His tenor voice was admired everywhere he went. And I'm interested in, in the connection here where in your first novel, The End of Eddie, it, it would have seemed impossible that you could have written this, this book, this, this new book. And the trajectory has been from trying to almost protect yourself from all of your family by writing a book in which you assert yourself. This is who I am. This is how I had to live. They are other than me, and, and their otherness is what I'm really you know, going to deal with in this book. And then you come around, as you say in that phone call, but in the book also, your father's a dancer. Uh, it's a beautiful image, something that you had never seen, but that your mother, you, that, you know, he was an admirer, that he, you know, he had a, in other words, he had a glamorous life with his body before his body became injured or his body became, um, so that it seems to me that your trajectory is an interesting one, that, that you're not going to go on all your life telling us all how much you resent your family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's it's true um, because I, also I, I I really believe that the the past is 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 obviously as we all know is a, is a creation is a creation of the present time and and the frames and the social frames and the personal frames and the political frames that we have around us in the present are defines the way we will perceive our past. You know, there, there is this very beautiful chapter in, in, the, in Didier Ribon's books that you know and that you, you wrote beautifully about, Returning to Reims, in which Didier Ribon says that in the 80s, 1980s and 1990s in France, he started to write about his past. And at that time, the gay movement was very, very strong in France. So when he was writing about his past, he would always write about his past as a gay person, as a gay child, as a scared gay child, to, to, to quote Allen Ginsberg. And, and, and at that time, the social movement, like the social class movement, was completely erased in France. And no one was talking about work class anymore. People would say it's old fashioned, it's Stalinist, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, and, and so when he would talk about his past and he grew up in a, in a, in a family of, of blue collar, of, 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 of workers, he would never talk about his past as a working class man. And in the 2000s, when, when people started talking again about working class, about class issues, suddenly he thought about himself as a working class kid. And so, and so the, 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 the political frame of the present like determined the way he was writing about his past. And, and as an individual level, it's in a way what happened with my father. You know, like suddenly I see the, I, I, I remember I opened the door and I saw my father and I saw his body was so weak and, and you know, he couldn't breathe. He was, he was, he was telling me, I'm sorry. 
He never said, I'm sorry. Like one time in my childhood, he told me I'm sorry. I've never heard him saying, I'm sorry to anyone. And I, I went in the apartment, I opened the door, and I see this man who said, I am sorry. And, and suddenly, I, I'm thinking, like, maybe he's another man. Maybe he was another man, you know? And suddenly, I started to have all these memories from, from an, another father. And, and, and so I truly believe that, yes, the, the, we, uh, 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 probably you, it's also like writing about the issues you write about, the, 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 the regions of the world you write about, like to, to, to leave the door open, to always change your perception over the issues you talk about. And, and, and I mean, like only about the Irish community uh, in different parts of the world, in different countries, like what is going on between your books is like very different situation and, and very different, you know, a very different relationship to the to this history, to this community. And there are so many other issues in your book, but but still for me, also to be a writer is to, is to leave the door open to that. And then people tell you, oh, is, isn't it a contradiction? And I'm saying, no, I'm just, I just don't want to write the same book again and again and again, you know, and so yes. Well, both of you have, have sort of written, well, yours is overtly political, yours is slightly political in many ways, and, um, you know, I would like to talk a little bit about what brought that on. I mean, you actually saw your father wasting away, and there's such beautiful passages in the book about how um, you name the people who destroyed your father's body. And you often talk about the sort of classism uh, surrounding Irish writers and, and what people thought about them as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, Sylvia Plath has, has a line in the poem, Daddy. It was just, Daddy, I had to kill you. You died before I had time. And, <laughs> and I think for those of us, I mean, I mean there's, a sort of, there's a sort of envy when I find a writer being able to write about the, the growing and changing and dynamic relationship with his own father, because I didn't have that. And uh, my father died when I was 12. And you know, he died just at the time when certain things were ready to be discussed. Uh, one of them was nationalism. You know, there was, it was just the year before Northern Ireland blew up and all of us had to rethink our relationship to the future and the nation and partition and Britain and all those things. I would love to have had an argument with him about that. <laughs> and and uh, the second one, of course, was Catholicism. And uh, I have to say, when the first, you know, chink, when the first opening came uh, and we saw the church in a different light, I would love to have come home on the train and say, hey, what do you think of this? Your church, this is your great church. And of course, the third one would have been the most difficult one, and it would have been, the, it was the great unmentionable. I, you know, that it, it, you, you can talk about homophobia. We didn't have homophobia in Ireland, because we didn't have homosexuals in Ireland. And that I have friends who have never come out to their parents yet that they're heterosexual. You know, you know they just, like, they just would be ashamed to say, I'm actually, you know, people don't like talking about sex, or didn't, I and mean, now they talk about nothing else. But I'm talking about a time when it sort of mattered to me, when there was no, you know, if you looked in the mirror, there was no one. But also there was no one trying to break the mirror or break you. It was just that there was no name, it wasn't said. And um, so that, that, that argument or that relationship, I didn't have, and it would have been great. I'm not sure it would have been great at the beginning, but it, would have, but it would have mattered to me in some way or other that I, that, that I had had that connection and had that changing relationship. And I, I, so I envy you. 
and, and you know, because you don't know where it's going to go next. Yeah, uh, I, mean, uh, I mean... How did you know about queers in that village? <laughs> uh, I mean, to be homophobic. I, I, I mean, it, it's strange because the fact is that people were always talking about homosexuality and, and in a way, as, a, as I sometimes say, I think that my, my father was more determined by, socially determined by homosexuality than I was as a gay person because he was all constantly pushing uh, this, this category and this, this idea of homosexuality far from him, you know? So he would uh, sit this way, not to look like a gay, because a, a gay <laughs> would sit like this. <laughs> Conversion therapy. Is I, sp I spotted you. <laughs> You've been outed on the stage. <laughs> I'm Dirty sorry. <laughs> you never be able to go home again. <laughs> He would, he would, he would, he would eat like um, big, big food and not small plates because because of his fear of looking gay. He would speak in a certain way because of the fear of looking gay. And and and, and like homosexuality was for for someone like my father and, and my brothers and and even my mother in a way, even the women. It was the homosexuality was always this kind of ghost, you know, surrounding us. And 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 you will build you like all the identity of my father was built upon homosexuality, but as something that it didn't want to be you know and 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 so he was involved all the time I, w I would hear homosexuals all the day all day long all the time and but also regarding like this um, uh, political uh, things and, and talking about politics uh, when 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 I saw my father again uh, t one year and a half two years ago something like this when I saw the state of, of his body I had this very extremely intimate um, memories of politics and one of my first memories as a child um, uh, are uh, memories of political decisions being made in France and impacted my father. So my, my father, he, he, when he was 35, I, I, I recount it in the book, he had this um, accident at the factory, something f fell on him and destroyed his body and destroyed his back forever. And so he got welfare from, from the French state. And at some point, the government of Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, with Martin Hirsch, uh, his minister, uh, they decided to create a new law that would push uh, poor people to go back to work, even if they had like very big issues with their health, with their bodies. And, they, they, the, the, and it didn't happen this way in France before. They would tell them, if you don't go back to work, you will lose your, your welfare. You know, like in the movie of Ken Lodge, uh, uh, Daniel Blake, which is, an, um, for me, really a masterpiece. And so I had these very extremely intimate memories of me being eight years old, and the, suddenly, from one day to the other, the administration calling my father and telling him, you have to go back to work, you have to go back to work, you have to go back to work. And my, my father could barely walk, you know? And, and, and so for me, the, there is a paradox, which is to say that, that I don't think that Who Killed My Father is more political that, than any other of uh, my, my two other books, because I really believe that like these political decisions were part of his intimate history as, as much as his first kiss, as much as the first time he made love, as much as, 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 as his relationship with his son and with his daughters. And, and so that's really what I wanted to show. It's just the part of the history of the body of my father. And when I said that in France, when I published this, this book, some people were telling me, oh, 
But it's more complicated than that. These people are not responsible. As if, you know, the more people have power and the less they have power according to what the dominant ideology says and pretend. And I remember when I wrote about the homophobia and the racism in the milieu of my childhood, and I was saying I'm trying to understand that. I try to understand why people were racist, why, why they were homophobic. The establishment in France would always tell me, oh, but no, they are responsible. You know, if you are racist, you are responsible. If you're homophobic, you are, you are responsible. And when I talk about the violence of the dominant class, then people say, oh, no, you know, they have like sociological excuses. It's not their fault. They are not responsible for what they do. So the more you have power and the less you are responsible. And I can't bear this idea. And also, so my book is also a struggle against that. When Angela Merkel in Germany decided to welcome one million migrants, she's the only person in Germany who was able to do that. So if you are a migrant, and if your daughter or your sister or your son on the men you love or the woman you love will not die in the Mediterranean Sea because you are welcome in Germany, it is your intimate history. It is your personal history. And I, ca I can complain in France about what France is doing to migrants. You can do it, you can do it, but we don't have this power. One person has this power. One person could say, I will welcome uh, one million people in France. It's Emmanuel Macron. The others, they can complain, they can try to convince him, but he is the only one who can say, we will do it, you know? And he doesn't do it. So these people, they have blood on their hands, you know? They have blood on their hands. There, there, was, there was an issue, or there was a magazine in Germany talking about all the migrants who called their children Angela or Merkel at the first, at the first name after the decisions. These people know that political decisions are part of their bodies, are part of their histories. And, and my book is also making this statement. There, there is no border between, particularly when you are working class, because in fact, yes, I can say Macron doesn't affect me, my life. I am a bourgeois, I, I am I'm making money, I'm traveling all, the, all around the world. Political is, politics is not targeting me as much as it's targeting my father. But when you talk about precarious people, poor people, migrants, political is part of their life. And that's really what I wanted to we, show. You have this beautiful passage about the day that your family goes to the beach, which I thought really exemplified how politics work um, on such a smaller scale. So I'm just going to read this real quick, if that's OK. Um, and, and the you here is it's directed to his father. So it says, you understood that for you, politics was a question of life or death. One day in the fall, the back-to-school subsidy granted each year to the poorest families. Um, wait, sorry for school supplies, notebooks, backpacks, was increased by nearly 100 euros. You were overjoyed, and you called out in the living room, we're going to the beach, and the six of us piled into our little car. The whole day was a celebration. Among those who have everything, I've never seen a family go to the seashore just to celebrate a political decision, because for them, politics changes almost nothing. I thought that was a great rhetorical movement there, and it just really drove home the idea behind what you're saying. Um, Colm, I'd like to, if, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, the, um, I think we've had this word, which, which is, uh, there's a specter haunting America, which is uh, the word deplorable. Um, and it was, it, was, it was just an off remark. It, it wasn't, she didn't put any thought into it. And it's easy to think, understand why she said it, but Hillary Clinton referred to the people who voted for, who, who were supporting Donald Trump as deplorables. And um, it didn't help her campaign. And, it, and it's, it's, it's a hard word if you happen to be somebody in a mining, you know, in, 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 
in Virginia or if you, you know, that I'm talking about the sort of resentment and the sort of mind that would eventually think there isn't any choice for me in this country but to vote for Donald Trump. He's the only one who might help me, although probably no one will. And the intervention in France of Didier Erebon, the, the, the book that you mentioned, Return to Rem, which is published in English, um, and of your books, have given us some way into, if you're an outsider, the most difficult business is to how did France, of all places, um, begin to return so many members of parliament, etc., for the um, National Front? That how did Le Pen rise? How did his daughter rise? And what does this current movement, which many of us watch with, with a bit of worry, um, the Yellow Jackets, I mean, how did this happen? And um, Didier Rabon's book is, as, as you say, that he, it, it's a detailed version written by a sociologist of who am I that in Paris I could tell everyone I was gay because that was fine, but I could not tell them what it was like at home. There was nothing glamorous about factory work, nothing glamorous about your body being broken down over a generation, so that, and, and you're living in cramped quarters, you're eating bad food, you're watching bad television programs, and there's a sense that this was designed for you. Someone does, as you say, someone designed this. And so you move over a period, one decade, two decades, from being a communist to being um, on the right. And you do it for almost the same reasons. Is, is there any way out of my dilemma? Who is speaking my language? Who understands how I feel? And in, if, if my feeling includes racism, you have to understand that you know, that's a fact. It's not, that feeling of mine is not just something ugly that arose. It, it arose in me over two decades. And um, in your book, uh, in your first book, the, the intervention was, I think, even more pointed and direct because it was more personal. I mean, the Erebon book includes a lot of theory, sociology, bits and pieces he'd been reading and thinking about. But your book just actually goes through, like, why are the girls' fingers all damaged in my village? Because the only work they can get is in the, uh, is in the supermarkets where they're, where they're banging away at the, the keys all day. And, and that business of um, the house itself, this is France. This is the home of you know, so much luxury, so much sense of itself as a place that rose up and became the center of culture and manners in the world. How could this France include me in this house where the windows are broken, where the bunk beds fall down, but also where you know, there's a new set of attitudes emerging. And, and, and I wonder if this is something that novelists can do, or in the Didier Erebon case, somebody just moving out of their own comfort zone in, into a personal place, which is, must, be, must have been very hard for him to write. And there's another writer, um, Annie, Arn Annie Arnaud. Have I pronounced her name right? And um, that, you know, her account of her, her parents' lives has this, I mean, she's a novelist, uh, but the, the, the way in which her parents' lives are described, and this seems to me to be in a very important movement in France, because if it's not there, you get silence, you get something occurring over two decades that nobody has really put shape on or given us a meaning for. And I, I wonder, what I suppose, maybe, can I ask a question? I know, it's, I know you're, did this feel to you like a challenge, like something that needed to be done in order to wake the country up? Yeah, in, in, a, in a way, I mean, I, I had the sense that 
French society and what we call France was built uh, on our bodies and on our works, you know? And so like everything that people would see about France, would think about when they think about France, it was built on the destruction of our bodies, you know? Exactly like the lives of these migrants in your book, uh, Brooklyn, you know? These people arrive, they create New York City as it is, and now New York City is such this like beautiful, fancy, international city, because these people work so hard to, to build it, and, and, and so the beauty is created out of the destruction of certain bodies and certain people. So as soon as I moved to Paris, and I, I, I was there studying philosophy, studying sociology, starting to write, and I was starting to read books, to go to the movies, and I would, I would never see these people. I would never see the people like my mother, like my father, and that, that's the way I, I, I started to write about them. And also, like, and, and I think like Annie Ernaud and Didier Ribon were very, very important model for me, because I had the impression that I, I couldn't do it through fiction. That for me, it was, it was not something that I that I could afford, you know. I, I had such this, such a sense of emergency to talk about these people around me. I thought like, if I don't talk about them, no one will talk about them, you know. No one will write about my mother. People will write about Marguerite Duras and Simone de Beauvoir and Toni Morrison, but they will never write about my mother, you know. And and I didn't want to, to. To, to talk about this milieu in a fictionalized way as a way of talking about them. I, wa I wanted to talk about them. And I'm not doing like a normative statement of, of what literature should be because I, I'm, I'm, I, I am a, such a big admirer of, of Colin's novels and fiction as, as I am of uh, Toni Morrison's fictions. Like I, I read a lot of fiction, but with my story, with, with my background in this situation, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do. There is this uh, story that I often tell, but um, I remember when Le Clésio got the Nobel Prize in France, you know, and so there was interview of him everywhere on TV, and uh, because he was uh, we were in France and it was a French Nobel Prize, and and Le Clésio was talking about the, the characters that he was building and 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 the situation, the chapters that he was building, and I, I was. A a teenager, and I, I, I saw it, and I thought, like, why doesn't he speak about us? You know, why does he create fake characters with fake pain when we are here, real people with real pain? Why? Why creating people? We are here, and and I know it was a very childish way of thinking because I really think that fiction can achieve great things, but for me, it was kind of a an initial uh, trauma that I. I could never get rid of, you know? And so every, every time I go in front of my computer to start, to start writing, I think about my mother, I think about my father, I think about my sister, I think about all the people that I grew up with, and, and I am ashamed if I don't write about them. And maybe, it's a, maybe I am limited by that, but I, it's, it's not my fault. I, I cannot help, you know? And, and as, as Colin was, was, was pointing out, it's true that I, I, did, I didn't realize it when I was writing, but I understood that, in fact, autobiography had such a strong political strength, you know? And I didn't know, I was just this little guy writing his story, you know? And alone in my bedroom, I, I didn't know someone would publish me, I, I didn't know some people would read me. And then, People, because it was autobiographical, they were confronted to, to what I was saying in, in a very political way. And sometimes they were even be begging me, but it's a little bit of fiction, isn't it? Like, tell us it's fiction, yes? And, and I would say, no, why do you want me to say that if it's not? And because I, I, I felt that they would feel more comfortable 
if it was fiction than if it was autobiography. And, and I really believe that the people that you were mentioning, Didier Ribon and Annie Ernaud, did that also, like because they are doing like autobiographical stuff and, and politically speaking, it doesn't mean that we should only do that and only autobiography and forever and only that. I don't, do, do, do you feel a difference when you write an, an essay or a novel, something more autobiographical, something more uh, fictional? Do you, in the relationship to your writing, how does it affect you when you work? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I have that ecclesial problem, you know, in that I, <laughs> I mean, that while there are urgent, burning questions, um, I'm in a room of my own, imagining and elsewhere, uh, which I think is is sort of um, that luxury is built on bodies too. But nonetheless, it's a luxury that has never left us. I mean, if we look at the last two thousand years, it's always, no matter what's going on. I mean, I think the story of the Polish poet Miłosz, you know, in in the middle of the of the Second World War, he's he's in um, he's in Warsaw and. What's he doing? You know, and, and he feels incredible guilt in all the years afterwards that during those years in Warsaw, he wrote poems and he wanted to get them printed and himself and his friends had magazines. But the Warsaw ghetto here and the Nazis there, that they were sort of in the middle as poets trying to do something with a line of poetry. So yes, so I'm just a bourgeois, you know, loser um, novelist. And um, I, I mean, I take your point that I, I should go and do something real and true. But, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, we should bring that up. <laughs> yeah, I got cancer. God gave me cancer. And I must have been bad. And, um, uh, it was your punishment for uh, writing fiction? I mean, honestly, I'm not. I'm not I, I, I mean, I'm not. What did you just say? It was your punishment for writing fiction. <laughs> Yeah, God said this, this Ecclesio business had to stop, this writing of fiction. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give this guy cancer. Honestly, I thought, um, I have these, all these keys because I have a keys to my office and I have all these keys and I had them in the right hand, um, you know, these are still the keys, um, the offending keys. I had them in the right hand pocket of my trousers and I thought the reason why I had a pain in my right testicle was that the keys were hitting against my testicle. So I just moved the keys out of my pocket, put them in my jacket pocket where they still are, and um, I um, thought, well, that's the end of my testicle pain. And then it sort of went away, and then it came back, and then it did various little things of its own. And then I was in Southern California, and I didn't know what to do. But eventually I went to Dublin, and I, um, I went to a man called a urologist. And um, he... Um, took a look at me and, and I mean it's really you know the whole business of people looking at your testicles I, I mean it just isn't uh, testicles are really I mean they really are a joke and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and you know uh, I had one of them taken out and um, if anyone wants to tell me that's half my manhood gone or anything like that I could, <laughs> it, just, it just isn't it just like I just I only have one testicle but I used to have two so I, I don't feel different. God can just go to hell. And, um, but I did have a thing called chemo chemotherapy and a, a drug called cisplatin. And um, I, 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 you know, I went in all the chat rooms and the only thing I got from them was that ginger ale good. And I, because I couldn't drink because I had no taste. So the water would taste like some poison and you have to spit it out and you had to drink, but I couldn't drink. But a woman came on and said, ginger ale. And then so I use ginger ale. But um, the, what happens to you in chemo is, the, is the, really the essence of the piece where you just go down to zero, where you can't, um, you can't taste at all anything. 
and your smell is acute. Your smell is so you can smell anyone's um, under underarm um, smell, and um, uh, and also you can't read, and also you can't listen to music, and also you don't want to talk to anybody, and you don't you can't really think, and um, that goes on week in, week out, and you say to the doctors, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm at my very right, this is, and they just look at you because they know that the chemo has to poison you in order to poison the, in order to poison the tumors. So anyway, I, I did all this, and, um, and then I got blood clots. And um, I really couldn't care less about blood clots. I, I'm not getting involved with you, I said to blood clots, you are just a minor ailment compared to my cancer, which is my big thing. And then I started to think, well, in the world, some, pe some people are blood clots and some people are cancer. Like, Cancer is something that's pervasive. You have to take them very seriously. You have to study them. You have to, like Angela Merkel would be cancer, whereas Macron is just a blood clot. Um, and um, Shakespeare is cancer. Christopher Marlowe is a blood clot. You know, um, um, you know Jackson Pollock is a bl blood clot, where Barnett Newman is cancer. You know, you can get, and, and if you know about sport, which I don't, you could really, I think, have a great time saying which players are blood clots and which players are cancer. So anyway, that's, that's my story. All right. If people aren't furiously tweeting that out right now, I'm going to be mad. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. <laughs> Wait, do you want to tell them where they can find that piece? Oh, yeah, the piece is um, it's, on, it's free on the website of the London Review of Books. So just go on London Review of Books and put in testicles, and you get me. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I want to go to another juicy piece of gossip, actually, in your book column. Um, <laughs> We'll go to the other gossip later. Um, so you talk about the trial of William Wilde versus Mary Travers. Oh my God, you've got to explain that. And how it relates to Oscar Wilde versus the Marquess of Queensbury. And um, the context is kind of like, how do these things play out in fathers and sons' lives? Because you have a really interesting connection there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's nice being on the stage with someone French because France has always been a sort of haven for people who are in trouble, especially sexual trouble in England, just go, go to France and where they don't seem to have um, sexual trouble. <laughs> so one of the great mysteries is why did Oscar Wilde not just go? The British government were absolutely enthusiastic about his just departure. In, in other words, if he was going to stay, he was going to be put on trial. He had sued the Marquess of Queensbury for libel in that court case. Facts emerged about him. Witnesses came. It was very clear that he, um, if you know, that he was guilty of um, homosexual practices, and that uh, he would be put on trial. The government left it open for him in every possible way to go to France, and he kept delaying and not going. And um, you, you know, the the sentence was two years of hard labour. And they meant the hard labor. They tied him to a treadmill every day, and he had to push it as though up a hill. And in complete solitary confinement, not allowed to speak at any time to anyone. A plank bed designed so that if you fell asleep, you fell off the plank. Food designed to give you diarrhea. And he was facing into this, and yet he didn't go to France. And um, so, there's an interesting thing about his father. His father was an eye surgeon, an ear surgeon, and um, was also an amateur um, antiquarian. But he had a patient called Mary Travers, and um, she became a friend of the family until the family grew tired of her. She didn't like the fact that the family grew tired of her, and she 
protested in every possible way, including in public. She wrote a pamphlet. She did everything. And one of her accusations was that Sir William Wilde, Oscar Wilde's father, had, um, under chloroform, had raped her. And um, she put this into a pamphlet. Eventually, there was another libel action because Oscar Wilde's mother, who could not contain herself, she wrote a letter to Mary Travers' father, which she libeled Mary Travers, who brought her to court. And it was a huge court case. And um, Sir William Wilde did not... Um, he, he, he did not appear in his own defence, which, which really made his... It was really bad business. Everyone, everyone commented on it. Lady Wilde did. And Mary Travers, in the end, was given a farthing damages. But, of course, it, they had to pay all her costs. What's interesting in the aftermath is that he wasn't disgraced, even though people believed Mary Travers' evidence that the Lancet, the magazine of doctors, supported him, editorials supported him. He wrote, you know, he continued in practice. He wrote another book, you know, he, it, it, that, that, it's, it's that idea that Oscar Wilde would have been, at this stage, um, he would have been a teenager, and he would have watched this business and realizing that this is the sort of scandal that will happen to a famous man but that the famous man can recover from it, or at least in the case of his father. So it just gives us some clue. Also, his father had three illegitimate children, and there was a lot of scandal, sexual stuff about his mother. So he came from this strange, raffish, Anglo-Irish family whose allegiances were gnarled. In other words, they, Sir William Wilde was knighted by the Queen, um, Lady Wilde, she, you know, even though she was an Irish nationalist, she called herself Lady Wilde. So they, their allegiance was to England, to that sort of power that came from London. But their allegiance was also to an Ireland of the past, which they both studied very carefully, and an Ireland, and an Ireland of the future, in which um, this, the connection between Britain would be severed, even if necessary, by violence, which Lady Wilde supported. So, 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 so they lived in this strange world um, in which they were, they were two different... Um, they had two different allegiances or loyalties. So that, that idea of uh, once Oscar Wilde went to England, he went to England with a lot of baggage, um, which he didn't always display, one of which was that he was an Irishman. Before he was anything, he was an Irishman. So therefore, he could appear in their drawing rooms. He looked like them. He could speak like them if he wanted to. We can all always do that in England. Just up our accents a few notches, and people will stop thinking you're Paddy, the Irishman. And could you go and get us a drink? You know, could you go and pour us a pint, Paddy? That, you know, Wilde was constantly um, remaking himself in England, but remaking himself from a very particular place which was a house his father owned in Dublin, and the sort of scholarship that his parents got involved in, which was to add dignity to Ireland, to, to explore archaeology and folk tales to, to the extent that it would give the Irish nation a sense of its deep roots in some set of noble stories or noble artifacts from the past. That, 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 that he, he had all that. And... Um, so that a play like The Importance of Being Earnest so sets out to undermine the English by entering into their spirit, by getting into their drawing rooms, and by making them seem oddly ridiculous. And um, he also, of course, wrote The Soul of Man under socialism, so that you know, he, he, he wrote both the pamphlet and the play. It's, no, uh, there is something really... <coughs> fascinating in what you say which is the and and i keep asking myself questions about it which is the inability to escape you know when when while could have escaped 
and still he stayed, you know? And, 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 and the human tendency to always try to fix a situation within the border of the situation and not like breaking free from the situation. And, and, and I, I, I talk about it in my, in my second novel, History of Violence, which describe um, an encounter that I did one night with a man who tried to kill me. And he gave me a lot of signs that he would probably kill me. He was like uh, uh, strangling me for a long, long time. I thought I was dying and everything. And I, I knew that I could, I, I didn't know. N knowing is not the, the right word. I could have escaped. I could have opened the door and just leave the apartment. It was in my apartment and I didn't do it. I was trying to calm him down all the time. I was saying, okay, calm down. You don't, have, you don't have to kill me. You will go to jail in your whole life, during your whole life if you do that. Don't waste your life, don't waste your youth. And, and I didn't escape, you know? And, and, and after it happened, I survived, and I started to write about it, about this, this event and about this moment. And when I was writing the book, I came across uh, William Faulkner uh, Sanctuary, Isnable Sanctuary, in which there is this woman, Temple Drake, who is like in this house, like she, they have a car accident, I think at the beginning. She's running all the time. And the she's run, like, she, she, en she ends up in this house full of like very, very scary people, uh, someone dangerous who will rape her, will sexually assault her. And, and, and all these people, like all of them are so scary. And like she runs away and she comes back, you know? And, and, and I remember when I read that novel of Faulkner thinking, it is so true. Why, why don't we escape, you know? Why, why do we always try to fix something? And it was the same thing in my childhood. It took, before like escaping my childhood, it took so much time for me to have the idea of escaping. During my whole childhood, when my father was telling me, you are the shame of this family, my biggest dream was to fit in. My biggest dream was to, so I tried my best not to be different. I tried my best not to escape, you know? and and. I, and I don't know, is it a civilizational thing? Maybe, yeah. maybe there is a, a kind of war ideology that we have to fight battles and don't, what, what do you think? About well, well um, in, in, in the book, um, The History of Violence, um, the interesting part is that you, staying within the circle, that you go to the police. And the police scenes, some of them are really funny where you say, the police says, hold on a minute, you met this Arab guy and you and him willingly, you know, without any violence or anything else, went home together to your apartment. So you took him home, this guy that tried to murder you, but you initially, you and him went home, like, what's that about? And you said, well, you said everybody does that. <laughs> <laughs> he says, everyone. I mean, like, hold on, uh, like, no, 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 everybody doesn't, doesn't, do doesn't do that. And the other thing then was the, you know, you know, you start regretting having gone near the cops because um, they start using the word Arab all the time. You know, it's, it's not a man, it's not a, you know, attempted murder, but it's the Arab, the Arab, the Arab. And that, um, so that in attempting to stay within the circle, the first thing you do is call the police. And then you realize that actually, somehow the circle is going to, you know, it's, it's going to come after you, as, you know, in, in, with another sort of violence. Yeah, yeah you, uh, you think that you will, 
you think that you will escape this circle and, and in fact you realize that it's part of the circle and that the police is putting you in this story again and again, taking your story from you. Actually, the guy was not an Arab, properly speaking, but for them, because he was from the south of, of Spain, he was an Arab, you know, like everything under Spain is Arab, everything east of Russia is Chinese, you know, like, so it's basically what racist people, what, what my mother thinks, you know, like uh, l l recently she told me, uh, uh, oh, uh, your sister met a Vietnamese guy, uh, uh, he doesn't look too Chinese, uh, and I told her, but isn't he Vietnamese? Uh, and like, this is basically like the racist structures of, of like, everyone is the same. And, and, and so the police was te keep telling like, he's an Arab, he's an Arab, and, and he was not, as if it was the explanation of the whole thing. And so not only they were keeping me in the circle, but also they were framing the circle differently. And, and, and maybe like for me, the only way to escape was to try to write the story, you know, to, to, to pull out myself from, from this story. And, and, and paradoxically, the more I tell the story and the more I escape the story. And yes, and because if I don't do it, they do it for me and I don't want that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reminded of my experience, you know, when I was raped and then I was forced to come out basically by my rapist and the people who were supposed to protect me were my parents, but they just reinforced a different, you know, set of strictures and sent me to conversion therapy. So I think there's something true about not knowing exactly how to escape because you appeal to authority and the authority ends up telling you that you were wrong or that the person, you did something wrong to end up in that situation. And you're within the circle as well. In other words, that those religious beliefs are ones that you're brought up with. All those prejudices are yours. So that you're sort of divided. Um, um, yeah. As well. I mean, and so when you're raped by someone who had also raped a 14-year-old boy and tells you that after he rapes you, you're thinking, oh, well, of course, because all gay men are predators, right? Right, like that's what you've been told your whole life by everyone, so it confirms something that makes it possible for you to not even realize you've been raped. Um, and there is, there is this kind of, it, it's very bizarre because you are, I, 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 I talk about it at some point, it, I completely relate to what you say because you, you are forced to stay in the circle, but you have no room in this circle. So I remember I was in front of the police and I was talking to them and at some point I told them, I don't want to press charge anymore because like they were telling me, like this guy will go 20 years in jail, uh, and and my my cousin went to jail, my grandfather went to jail, and I thought like maybe there is another way, maybe there is, but I wouldn't, I would have no voice. I didn't have any voice. I didn't have, a, I couldn't make any decision. And even when I said I don't want to press charge anymore, they told me, but it's too late because you. They told me word by word, your story doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to the state. It belongs to us. It's a crime against society. I don't know if it's the same in the US. It's considered a crime against society. So you have no choice. And you will see doctors, you will see judges, you will see other policemen, and you will have to talk about it again and again and again and again. So I was here in the circle, but with no voice in the circle. So as if like inclusion and exclusion were part of the same thing, you know, as if they were working as 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 a soul and and as 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 one as one. The, for me, one of the one of the person who really tried to fight against it and and she suffered a lot from from that, is the the, the woman uh, who was um, assaulted by um, uh, by, by, uh, by the. I forget his name suddenly by by the the Polish movie maker Roman Polanski. Oh, yeah. And she say, like she was saying, I want to press charge because this man injured me. 
it made me bad, you know? But at the same time, I want to have a room in this story. And so maybe, eventually, I, I want to understand what happened. And for me, for example, understanding is more important than punishment. And she wasn't saying, you should all do the same things than me. She was saying, it makes me suffer to think that punishment should go first, you know? And she said, I want to get out of this story. But she, she couldn't, because the state structure was saying, no, this is the way it is, you know? And so, in spite of all the individuals, in spite of all the different reactions that we can have, the justice system, the state system, the police system, most of the time they impose you one way of doing, you know? Some people will want to talk with the person. Some people will want to not see the, you know, I, when, when the trial of the guy who assaulted me started, I didn't want to go. I, I'm so scared of him. He's the person who scared me the most in my life. And so people were telling, oh, Edouard Louis is afraid of confronting this man, so maybe it's not true what he was saying. But no, I'm scared of this man, you know? And because he tried to kill me, I don't want to see his eyes again. I want to be out of this story. And some people will not have the same reactions than me. Some people will want to talk to this person. Some people will want punishment. Some people won't want punishment. And so my question, the hurt question of history of violence is why the victim have such a small place in their own process of what happened to them. The, the, I just finished with this with, with one, with what I'm saying with one little quote for me. The one, one thing I came across when I was writing this was um, also at a completely different level, but the book of Primo Levi called The Drowned and the Saved. It's a book of essays that was published post-mortem just after his death. And the, it's, it's a collection of essays. And in one of the essays, Primo Levi talks about the reactions that he got after publishing his first book about the concentration camps, uh, If It's a Man, Sequestro uh, Nomo. And, and, and it's incredible because Primo Levi published this book, like he very quickly is one of the first to publish books about the, about the camps. And he starts to get letters from people who, tell, who didn't go to concentration camps, and they tell him, oh, you are not tough enough with a Nazi. You are like understanding, you are not. And these people who didn't go there, they are lecturing him about the way he should react to that, and the, the, the way you should deal with his own story. And this happens, of course, I'm, I don't compare that with what I'm, I'm saying before, but the structure is the same. The people who didn't suffer always lecture the people who suffered about the ways they should deal with that. And there is no individuality, no complexity allowed. And so maybe that book is even more political than Who Killed My Father. You know? Yeah, and just to jump off that real quick before we open it up, uh, Column, you talk, I mean, you, you actually read De Profundis in Wild Cell uh, to, like you were closed off and people were watching you on a screen, is that right? They were allowed to watch you. And, and I was just thinking uh, while you were talking, Edouard, like about how we often try to, you know, gain some control over our own story through words. And Wild stayed in that cell and wrote, you know, letters that, as you describe, column, um, you say, uh, you know, you didn't know what sound the sentences Wilde had written in the solitude should make when read aloud. Um, you didn't know what the voices should be like when spoken to these cold four walls, theatrical, angry, passionate, dramatic. You also talk about how he didn't really know if it would go anywhere, you know. I mean, Deprefundus is an extraordinary document. Uh, um, in, in the last six months of Wilde's incarceration, 
there, there was there was a new prison governor, and he discovered a rule. And I, I, my my sense is that the Home Office and the British government were were somehow or other behind this. That the rule said that the prisoner could write a letter, but there was nothing in the rule said how long the letter could be. So he said to Wilde, you know, you could write a letter, and it could be very long, and we could you know get it from you every day, and it would amount to something in the end. And basically was telling him you could write a book, but just call it a letter. And so you could write every day. So Wilde wrote this um, 55,000 word text, De Profundis, which was a letter to um, Lord Alfred Douglas, which accused him of many, many things. It was also a contemplation on the nature of suffering, on Christ's suffering, on the prisoner's suffering, and on whole ideas about forgiveness. And um, this is, I mean, it's a great sort of unstable text. Um, when, when, when I went to Reading Jail, which, which is now sort of up for sale, the, it, it wasn't haunted by Wilde's presence. It was, it was um, every cell, but the, the prison was built in the 1840s, it's cruciform, which means you only need one prison officer through the night that can see down four long corridors. But in every cell, there had been two, what the British call, and the British love calling them this, young offenders. And um, the, there, so there were bunk beds, two little chairs, a little table, um, a toilet, and a shower. And, and there had been a TV. So they were locked in there all day uh, until two or three years ago. So, the, the, I mean, cell after cell after cell of what young offenders, I mean, what they might have done, I don't know. But the idea of, of locking them into cages in twos in a prison built in the 1840s really horrified me when, when I saw, you know, it, it looked to me like a scene from history where you would bring school children around saying, this is what they did in the 15th century in medieval Europe. This is who they were. Luckily, we've changed. This was just two years before. And they just moved because they moved the prison system elsewhere. But, but so that going into Reading Jail was, was really an eye-opener. And being locked in Wild cell for five and a half hours, um, I made a rule, maybe that's what calls this testicle rubbish, was um, that I wouldn't take a toilet break. You know, that I would just, just go ahead reading, that there wasn't time for this toilet rubbish. And um, so I read the, um, yeah, I read De Profundis with, people could peep in at me regularly. Um, which was sort of nice, and then it showed on a screen on the, uh, you know, in the chapel. But it, it is an extraordinary text because it's so hybrid, unreliable, and shifting in its tone. And it was written under the most astonishing conditions by this man. Sometimes he could not get yesterday's pages back to revise them. Sometimes he could. So anyway, if anyone hasn't read it, or even if you've read it, just read it again because it's an extraordinary document. It does feel so raw. Yeah. And reading it. Yeah, because it's first person confession, accusation. You did this, you did this, I did. And just, uh, sometimes the sentences are, I mean, he's, he was a classical scholar a while, so you can see the beautifully balanced sentences he's making under these appalling conditions, you know, in this cell. Yeah. It's quite beautiful. Um, so I think we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. And I can't really see where the, the mic is, but. If you want to raise your hands, I'm going to try to see you. Uh, yes, oh, the in, are in the back there, that man, yes. Um, so, Edward, you spoke uh, very passionately about feeling the need to write your own story and write the story of your parents. So I'm curious why you chose to call this an autobiographical novel and how that's different from being an autobiography. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Um, in fact, 
that, that it was never really a question uh, in my mind. Um, it was more something that my publishers were thinking about and thinking of. Also, it's very different in, in France and in the US because in France there, there is no like non-fiction category. There is not something like fiction and non-fiction. It doesn't exist. You have a roman, récit, uh, essay, and, but there is no like this, this non-fiction thing doesn't exist. And so I don't know, like for, for what, what I think that for me an, um, a novel is a is a is a construction. A novel is a literary construction, and I, and I don't think that construction necessarily leads to fiction, you know. And so also I I decided to keep novel on 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 the books because I thought like the more I want to say the truth and to be precise about my childhood, the more I have to build it, you know, literally speaking, with different level of languages, with a certain way of structuring the chapters and everything. And, and I was very influenced by sociology because it was what I was studying. And, and, and when I was reading some Pierre Bourdieu and I would see the graphics that Pierre Bourdieu was building, I thought this is a, constru a typical construction. A graphic is like, it, there is nothing like graphics around us, you know? But suddenly when you see these graphics, you see the reality maybe more than if you just go down the street and you look around you, you know? Maybe you will understand more things. And I thought at a, at a literary level, maybe if I play with the language, if I play with the literary tools, if I play with the tools that literature offers me, I will go deeper into autobiography than if I just write, you know, a memoir with all the details and it can, and it can be so beautiful. Like, if you think about the memoir from Simone de Beauvoir and all the books that she wrote, like it's very, very detailed what she's eating, what she's doing, what she's, uh, and, and, and it's, it's a masterpiece, like all the books are a masterpiece together. But, but I thought that through the, the tools offered by the novel and the construction, the literary construction, I, I, I could, yeah, I could do something more autobiographical. So that's why I kept it, even if I don't really think about it that often, <laughs> yes. Other question? Oh, uh, yes, back there. Thank you. Hi. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. I find myself writing about my father. There was a family secret that came out upon his death, a very profound one for the family, one that was decades old. So in writing about it, the challenge I'm finding is, besides all of the emotions when one writes about one's father, is losing the distinction about what's my story and what's his story. So I just wanted to get your point of view. Can you go ahead? <laughs> no, no, go. <laughs> you wrote about more fathers than I did, so. And <laughs> um, I think, um, just as speaking as a well-known nonfiction, I mean, I, and as I wrote this piece about cancer, I, I just wrote it down what happened from beginning to end, and I didn't worry about anything. You, you know, I showed it to two people who were mentioned in it in case they wanted me to add or subtract something. It was just so I didn't want to have a problem later on, you know, where I had mis, um, you know, mischaracterized them in some way. But other than that, which was just a tiny thing, and they both said it was fine, I didn't worry. You know, it was just what, what happened next, what happened next, what happened next, what happened next? And then I finished, but I, I, you see, I think if you start worrying, who am I? Am I appropriating? Am I taking my father's story? I, it's it's over. It's it's yours. It's your story. But even if it isn't your story, make it your story. T tell it. Just just write it down. Just don't put a theoretical thought into it. 
just write the story down and write it as well as you can with as much detail as possible. And the rhythm sometimes will lead you to another rhythm and you'll find that you're saying something that isn't you or him, but you're moving towards something else being said about the relationship between people that any reader will be able to say, that didn't happen to me, but I think I know it now. And that's what you want to do, which is to, not, I'm not saying make your experience universal. There's nothing worse than universal. <laughs> um, but I mean, make it so particular that the person reading it will think, ah, I know what that was like now because of these particulars. So that, that would be my advice. I, I completely agree with Colin. <laughs> I mean, yes, I think I, I never thought about the people I was writing about since I thought that it was a story that I wanted to say, a story that I wanted to tell. And, uh, and also, I, I don't know, when I was writing, I was thinking about the, I was thinking about gay community, about minorities, about people who suffered the same things that I suffered from. And I, I didn't think about like father and mother. I thought that it was secondary uh, compared to, 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 to my people, <laughs> to the people who suffered the same things that I did. But really, no, like um, Colin's answer was much better. <laughs> I had like a few tricks on that, just because um, I was, I was worried again about being kicked out of my family a second time, um, which, you know, yeah, for writing the book, you know, the first time it was bad enough. <laughs> um, and so a lot of what I did was I had a few readers that I would speak to and say, you know, I don't, I don't need all your comments on this. I just want you to know, I want to know what you think of my father, like just flat out. And they would say, I wanted to hate him, but I couldn't. And that was sort of how I knew that I could continue writing it. Although there was one scene in my book uh, that I really struggled with telling because my father is a, a missionary Baptist preacher. And um, he does like a lot of work in the community and it's not all bad. And there's this one uh, passage about how I caught him watching porn late at night. And for a preacher in a small town, you know they're all going to read that book. And, and I was sitting there thinking, like, is he going to lose his job? So that was the only thing I worried about. But I did, like Edouard said, I thought about my community. And I thought about how I needed to demonstrate that uh, this sort of hypocrisy was something that my father and I shared in that moment. And, and it felt more important to say that and to just suffer the consequences of it. And other questions? Uh, let's see. I believe you had your hand up for a while. Oh, okay, sorry. I, um, I know, Colin, you've talked about your father dying at a young age, and I'm wondering if any of you have comments about so many children who grow up in this country who do not ever have fathers and what this impact is on them, and if anyone has written about that. Um, if you look at the opening of um, James Baldwin's autobiographical writing, you know, The Far Next Time, and... Um, other books, um, and if you look at Obama's Dreams from My Father, you find that in both cases they begin describing the death of their father as uh, something the reader needs to know about. And both of them want to claim that their father came from far away, that his color was different than theirs, that, you know, that, um, and um, that somehow or other he represented a world that they had managed to escape from. And, and it is in the very, it's interesting, you look at the opening pages to think, 
are just doing the absolute classic killing their father thing without even knowing they're doing it. They just need to establish before anything. I, uh, like almost like Jesus, I came into the world alone. My father was not really my father. I was my, fa I was my own father. Um, and um, so the, the idea of not having that experience of being able to become yourself despite somebody else or in the shadow, move out of the shadow, I, I think is a really maiming experience not to have that opportunity to actually be able to kill your father or, or, or distance yourself. Or, or It seems to me a very serious one for men. And it must be different for women, but it must be equally maiming. And so it seems to me a very disturbing thing that... Anyway, uh, you know, because people talk about guidance from a father. I don't know anyone who's ever got guidance from their father. I mean, I really don't. And maybe their father sits them down someday and tells them, you know, pay your bills on time and get your college essays, you know, in on the due date. But no one listens to that. I mean, fathers are grumpy fellows sitting in the corner, aren't they? I mean, maybe things are changing, but... Anyway, I, so I'm not talking about that idea of guidance of, you know, you know, going to the sports occasion with your dad, which is often a complete nuisance, you know. Um, I mean the business of just becoming yourself despite him or getting him and you rise higher than he does. That seems to me a natural thing to want to do. And I related to, I have to say that I, you know, I really, I really wish I, I grew up without a father, you know, I... I I had, there were some people in the village who were growing up with only a mother, and I was so jealous of them. I was so jealous of that situation, and I wish I, I wish the same thing for my mother, you know, because my, my father was so, so violent toward my mother, you know, like not not physically violent because his father was physically violent, and he was beating my grandmother, my father's mother, and my father was so traumatized by it, and he would he was kept he, he, he would keep saying, "I will never beat my family, I will never beat anyone," because he saw his father doing it when he was four years old, five years old, like like his father would just beat so badly uh, my grandmother, but but still he was constantly like making fun of my mother in front of everyone else you know he was he was the master of time we had to be waiting for him all the time so he would go to the cafe of the village and my mother was supposed to cook and wait for him before eating because he would be upset if we had food without him so we were there and like so it was really defining the whole temporality and the whole structure of the time all, all, all the time every day when we would go to the village he would say in front of, he would call my mother, hey, fat cow, in front of everyone else. And this is the first, it's the only moment where I saw my mother crying in my old childhood. He did that and she went home and, and she cried. And she, he was always crying, but she would never cry. And she cried that one time. So I wish he was not there. I wish he was not with us, you know? And I don't know, I don't want to be mis misunderstood. I, I don't know if I love him, you know? I don't know if I love him. I'm, I'm fighting for him because I'm, I'm fighting because of what he endured and what his life is. But for me, I don't need to love someone in order to fight for someone, you know? And in, in my two first books, I talked about his violence and I talked about mostly about women and, and gay people. And this time I wanted to talk about him. But for me, it doesn't erase 
what it did, you know? It doesn't make it disappear. And, and, and so th that's why I was a little bit at odd when I saw that the, some of my publisher wrote that my book was a love letter to my father, because it's not, it, I didn't write this part in my book, it's not a love letter. I'm, I'm fighting for a man who was destroyed by his life, but who was destroying other people too, you know? And, and, and so this is, for me, yes, we, we have to invent a way of, 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 of making politics without love, you know? People, people don't need to deserve that we fight for them, you know? I want to stand up and to fight for people who suffer, no matter if they are good people or if they are bad people, you know? We, we have to write about and, and, and fight more generally against objective conditions. We, we shouldn't care about, like, how these people good or not. If there is an injustice, we have to fight against this as, as such, but do I love him? I don't think so. I don't think so. I feel like, Colm, you have a pretty good quote about this process of trying to humanize the father, even if you don't necessarily love them. Um, you're talking about Joyce, and you say, instead of studying the main character, his father, basically, as though for his own amusement, he entered his spirit, allowed him to have a complex sensibility and a rich response to experience. Yeah, yeah that was what Joyce did. Uh, when, when every other opportunity was available to him, when every temptation was there to get his own back, he began this very complex journey of re redesigning his father almost in the light of something close to forgiveness, but, uh, but, uh, but uh, letting a sort of glow occur, which I think helps us understand the extraordinary style of Ulysses and the, its structure and its ambition, that there was something great at stake here, a way of forgiving the world almost in a book. Yeah. Well, that, that complexity and richness makes good literature. I mean, whenever <laughs> I fail as a human being, I just think, well, the better story is to be more complex. So <laughs> that's like how you save your soul through writing. <laughs> Um, yeah, or just use writing as an excuse for really bad behavior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, God still gives you cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Poor taste. <laughs> the person without cancer cannot make the cancer joke. J just learned that. Yes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you have, yeah, sorry. You yeah, I, I'm going to get has it now. made a joke about my cancer. Did you hear that? <laughs> yes, yes. Do it now. <laughs> Edward, you in in your essay, uh, the introduction to the book on Paul Dieu, you talk about your your awareness of class consciousness among educated people, people in Paris. Can you say something about how you came to this? I mean, you went to the Ecole Normale Supérieure. I don't know where you went before that, but that must have been an extraordinary shock to be suddenly with all these uh, very pampered intellectual uh, students. Yes, um, I mean. For me, it was it was the end of a dream because when I was tr at some point when I finally tried to escape my childhood, I thought that the world that I would get in would be a perfect world <laughs> that would welcome me. I thought that educated people would welcome me as a gay person, as w as what I was, and uh, I I went to Paris and I thought that it was much more complicated than that. And that not only it was difficult as a gay man, it was certainly easier to be gay in Paris. But then I discovered, and it's related to what we were talking before, uh, I, re I realized that I was a working class boy, you know, and that I was completely, that I was completely 
like there was a wall between me and the others. So they would talk about like all the movies they saw with their parents when they were ch they were children. The travels they did. Of course, we never traveled. The books they read with their parents. They would, and like every day, I was measuring the distance between me and them. It, and probably it was it gave me strength to to do something and to write because every day I thought like I will never be like them. I will never. I will always be late. You know. And I remember, for example, there is this scene where the, there was a guy who came and and he talked about uh, Wagner, the, the composer, the, the music the com uh, compositor, um, and. Uh, and I, I never heard of Wagner. I didn't know his name, and he was talking about it. And I thought that he was he was so proud of himself when he was talking about Wagner. He had a sense of himself while talking about Wagner. And so at, at, during the evening, I went back home and I, I googled uh, Wagner, and I, I I took a piece of paper and a pen and I wrote everything I could write about Wagner, and I learned it. And the day after, I came back to school and I say, "Oh, Wagner is a wonderful composer, <laughs> and uh, I love him." And uh, <laughs> so this is a small anecdote, but the thing is that I had these gaps that I I I had to fill out all the time. And maybe the, at the in Paris particularly, and at the Ecole Normale Supérieure. The, the, the most difficult part was uh, talking about politics, because as soon as I would talk about politics, people were telling me that I was too violent, too, you know, too vehement, vehement, do we say it in English? And that I was too vehement, that I was talking too loud, that I was... And, and this is the moment where I understood that for them, as I say in Hook in My Father, for them the po politics was a matter of uh, aesthetics. It was a way of seeing the world, of perceiving the world, but they never endured in the flesh the very meanings of, of, of politics. And, and, and I was always screaming. <laughs> I was always angry. And they, want, they always wanted quiet, calm conversations. And I couldn't, because they were thinking, like, if this guy is going to be elected, we won't have food, you know? My father won't have food. When Macron decided to cut five euros a few months ago for the poorest people, and in the same week, he cut taxes for the richest people. Five euros of food is two days of food for uh, five euros is two days of food for my father, you know. And and when I was when I was a child, very often at the end of the month, we didn't have money, and we had zero, zero. And 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 if we had five euros, we could have been able to eat. Sometimes I, I I talked about it in the end of Eddie. My mother would just say, "We don't have food for tonight," you know. And uh, can you go and beg the, the, the neighbors to, 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 to get food from them? And, uh, and so when I, w I was there in Paris, and this was an impossible conversation. It was an, like, uh, sorry, I'm a little bit talkative, but uh, sometimes the, th the, the school would take us to theater or to movies. And very often they would ask like a symbolic uh, amount of money, like one euro or two euros to go to theater. Like, it, it would have cost 20 euros to take the bus and go to the city to see the movie. And I didn't have one euro, and the people around me they couldn't understand that. They would, they to, I, I told like my, my parents don't have the money, and they would, they would tell me, but yes, but even if you don't have money, you have one euro. Like I understand you don't, but one euro, everybody can have one euro, and and it was a complete disconnection. And 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 fortunately for me, that pushed me to write, you know, because maybe if I was, if I had been welcomed by these people in Paris. I would have become like them, just a, just a plain, basic bourgeois, not questioning society, and and fortunately they didn't accept me, and it was my biggest chance. You know, I didn't make any friends there. I didn't. Only I had one friend. In, I have one friend, Ines. She's the only one. But except for that, I, I, 
I, I didn't feel comfortable and I had to reinvent myself because of that. And, and because when you arrive in Paris, when you change from one social class to the other, the, the appealing life that they have, at, the, at some point you want to have it, you know? Uh, it's normal, I fought so hard to escape the village of my childhood. When I arrived in Paris, I wanted to be like them, you know? I wanted to have their life, to go to the opera like them, to go to good restaurants like them, to not question anything like them, I wanted it. But I failed again. And because I failed, because they were, they were, were not welcoming, I, I, I had to do what I, what I did and, and I, will, I will continue. But like, to be accepted for me is the worst thing ever. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's, the, it's the best thing to be just <laughs> put on the side. I think we're out of time now. I, I actually love that ending of our talk. <laughs> Don't accept any of us. So uh, these two have some beautiful books right over there in that corner. Are you all going to be signing as well? They're going to be signing over in that corner. Keep the applause going. They're magnificent. Thank you so much. <laughs>